If you have your Bibles with you, I ask that you would turn to Judges chapter 1. Please give attention now as I read the first 21 verses, beginning at Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonizah Bezek at Bezek, and they fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him, caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahimon and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. He gave him Aksah, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of that city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that we as your people are Christians, the followers of your Son, Jesus Christ. And yet, Father, we are united with the people of the old covenants, even though we live in the time of the new covenant. 
And so, Father, we pray that you would help us that we might profit from the way that you dealt with them, knowing that you deal the same way with us today. And we give thanks, Father, for all that you'll do in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin a sermon series. Uh, I preach infrequently, but I do hope to preach through the book of Judges, God willing. And the reason for this is because if you're like me, you don't know the Old Testament particularly well, and you may even think it's kind of irrelevant. And so I want primarily to educate you a little bit. I do love this book. I have preached in two different churches through this uh, book before, and so I think it will be primarily an educational experience, and I hope it will also be a spiritual building experience for you too, helping you in your walk with the Lord. Now, in spite of uh, my explanation here, some people might be thinking, why in the world would a Christian want to study the book of Judges because, after all, we're not Israelites marching through the land of Canaan and smiting the Canaanites and the Amorites and so forth. And so why should I really be interested in this book? Does it really have any applicability to me at all? Well, the first answer to this question lies in a verse very familiar to most Christians, and that is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it says all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Well, note here it says that all scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. And so when it says that all scripture is profitable, it means the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Secondly, the reason that I want to preach uh, through this book of the Bible is that everyone enjoys a good story. The Lord apparently made us to enjoy the stories of the Bible because I notice when I preach sermons and I start to tell a sermon, everybody all of a sudden perks up a little bit. Those whose eyes were fluttering, almost falling asleep before, become alive from the dead. And they listen very intently because they enjoy hearing about the experiences of other people. And so the Lord has written his word with stories in large measure in the Old Testament. The book of Acts in the New Testament is the same thing. But particularly in the Old Testament, God has chosen to teach his people through stories because he knows how he created them and he knows that they really relate to seeing how he related to people, individuals in the Old Testament and therefore will relate to them. As I said, I preached uh, this uh, at another church, at Covenant Presbyterian Church there, and the children must have really liked it because they developed a nickname for me. Since my name is Thurman, they began to call me the Thurminator. <laughs> the reason for this is they apparently had been watching Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, The Terminator, and so they, uh, I, I guess that... It, uh, they uh, enjoyed uh, the sermons because it reminded me of, uh, reminded them of that. And then, lastly, as far as Judges itself is concerned, no other book in the Old Testament offers the modern American church a better reflection in the mirror as this book does. Daniel Bach says in his commentary on Judges, "Quote: From the jealousies of the Ephraimites to the religious pragmatism of the Danites." 
from the paganism of Gideon to the self-centeredness of Samson and from the unmanliness of Barak to the violence against women by the men of Gabeah. All the marks of Canaanite degeneracy are evident in the church and its leaders today, unquote. And so this book is a wake-up call for all churches, for people in all churches who are perishing in their own selfish pursuits. Not that it's all doom and gloom, because it starts out on a positive note in chapter 1. And so for this reason, I have decided to entitle this sermon, A Good Beginning. After the exodus from Egypt, Joshua took over leadership of the Hebrews and led them into Palestine, and the Lord commanded Israel to utterly destroy all the inhabitants because he had promised this land to Israel. And further than that, he did not want the inhabitants of the land that were presently there misleading his people into idolatry, particularly through intermarriage. He says this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and do you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction." You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking away their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. And under Joshua and the surviving generation in Israel, they pretty much did what the Lord had commanded them. They went in and they established a beachhead in major victories in Israel. And so it was left to the next generation now to consolidate what Joshua and his generation had accomplished. They had to conquer the rest of Israel. And so the question comes up for them, how would the Israelites of that generation perform? And the answer to that question comes in the form of a double introduction, which sets the stage for all that follows in the book of Judges. The first introduction goes from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 5, and it summarizes Israel's performance kind of like you would read in the newspaper, kind of like a human would observe just watching the events from a human perspective. And then the second introduction runs from chapter 2, verse 6, to chapter 3, verse 6, and it gives God's evaluation from a divine perspective of how his people performed. And it, it shows that, uh, sorry, skipped over something. And so the first verse tells us that after the death of Joshua, the Israelites approached the Lord and they asked uh, which tribe should go up first to the battle. And a key word here is to go up or they went up or some variation of that. And it divides the first introduction into three sections. It is used in the very first verse of chapter 1 
uh, to de describe the initial successes of the southern tribes of Judah and Simeon, which we are covering today. And then in verse 22, it starts the second section, which shows the increasing failure of the northern tribes. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it begins a new section where the angel of the Lord presents his summary of Israel's performance. And so in verse 2, the Lord selects Judah and promises victory over their enemies. And Judah immediately struck a deal with Simeon that if you will go with me and help me conquer my territory, I will go with you and help you conquer the territory that you have. And this was a natural alliance between Judah and Simeon because Judah and Simeon were natural brothers. They were both the children of Jacob and Leah, according to Genesis chapter 29. And according to Joshua chapter 19, verse 9, Judah had a disproportionate, disproportionately larger uh, area of land than uh, all of the other tribes. And so perhaps for this reason, God included Simeon's territory within the territory of Judah. And so this geological arrangement made it convenient for Judah and Simeon to go to war with each other. Also, Simeon was less than half the average size of all the other tribes of Israel. Judah was the largest tribe in population. And so Simeon was not big enough to really have too big a uh, plot of land to defend because they weren't large enough to really take care of it. And so since Judah was the largest tribe, they were very able to help Simeon. And so they both profited from this arrangement in one way or another according to each other's circumstances. And in verse 4, the alliance under the abbreviated name Judah went up to begin their fight. And when it says that they went up, it refers to the fact that the first cities that they attacked were higher in elevation. And so the first eight verses talks about the upland campaign or the going up campaign against the Canaanites. And the Jud Judahites whipped 10,000 Canaanites and Perizzites in this battle. Canaanite is the name usually for all the inhabitants of the land. The Perizzites were a subgroup. We don't really know exactly where they came from. And in this battle, Judah captured the ruler of Bezek, who is called Anani Bezek. Now, Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord. If you were to look at the Hebrew throughout the Old Testament, and when it's in the lowercase letters, that is the word Adonai. And so Adonai Bezek means that this guy called himself Lord of Bezek. And the Judahites cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And the reason for this was because if he didn't have a thumb, he couldn't hold a weapon. And if he didn't have big toes, he couldn't run. And so he would no longer be a threat to anybody within Judah. And perhaps the Israelites intended this mutilation as an application of the law of lex talionis. That law is stated in Leviticus 24 verse 19 where it says, If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. And so Adonai Bezek admits that he has done this to other people and God has repaid him by doing the very same thing to him. 
And so the Israelites repaid this evil man for what he had done to others. But the problem is that's not what God said for them to do. God told them to kill this man. And so they mutilated him instead and allowed him to live. But the Lord did not chasten them for this disobedience. Instead, the Lord uses Adonai Bezek as a teaching tool to interpret his circumstances as his due punishment from the Lord. Uh, he did not know the Lord, apparently. He was a pagan. That was the reason that he was attacked by the Israelites. But God nevertheless uses him as his mouthpiece to declare what the Lord was doing in this instance. We see here, well, it doesn't say what God feels about all these things, but it does show how God feels about this thing through the mouth of this pagan Ananiah And you say, well, Ken, how in the world do you know that? And the way that we know that is by the way that the rest of the scriptures elaborate uh, and we compare that to what's going on in this story. And so in the book of Hebrews, it says in chapter 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, Adonai Bezek was one who was alive and fell into the hands of the living God. And since he was a pagan, and the reason that we know that he's a pagan is they were the ones that were, the Lord had told them to attack. And so this is an example of the Lord's execution of judgment on those who lived in rebellion against him. Adonai Bezek was not an innocent man. Adonai Bezek is representative of all those who were living in the promised land, who were living a decadent, rebellious life against the Lord. And I realize that this is not a popular teaching in our day of progressive, positive thinking. People want us to be more broad-minded and large-hearted when we deal with people, and they want us to preach the abundant life to people. Because God has promised an abundant life to those who would come and believe the Lord Jesus Christ. However, the Lord includes in that abundant life that we should live holy lives. We should not be living in rebellion against the Lord. We should be avoiding sin and leading a righteous life by the Lord's standards. And so the Lord's attitude and message to us in the first eight verses of chapter 1 in Judges is that God exercises a righteous retribution against sin and against sinners. And therefore, we should avoid sin diligently. And so he calls us in these verses through this example of Adonai Bezek to faithfulness and obedience to his commandments. Well, after the Upland campaign in verses 9 through 16, Judah turns to go down. They turn south and west from Jerusalem and head into that territory, which is generally flat. And so this is called the Lower Campaign. And Judah first successfully attacked Hebron. According to verse 20, Caleb was one who led Judah in this battle. And afterwards, he received Hebron as part of his inheritance. And then Judah and Simeon next attacked Debir, which is about 10 miles southwest of Hebron. 
Caleb, who still led this enterprise, promised to give his daughter Aksah to whoever took the city. And so Othniel, who was Caleb's nephew, accepted the challenge and captured the city. But I want you to notice how much space in Scripture is uh, stated for this battle. The only thing it says about the battle is Othniel took it. But look at how much space is devoted in this chapter to talking about Aksa, Caleb's daughter. It spends four verses talking about Aksa. And so the Lord would have us to focus on this young lady's life. And soon after her marriage was arraigned, Aksa took the initiative. She suggested that Othniel request a piece of land from Caleb. And Othniel did so and received a portion nearby as his and her inheritance. However, Aksah wasn't finished. If you have the ESV in verse 15, it says that their land was in the Negev. Now, the Negev in Hebrew means the south land. In other words, the southern area of Israel. And uh, the problem was that Debir wasn't in the Negev. So this is probably uh, should be understood that the land that Aksah and Othniel had was like the Negev. In other words, it was a desert-like, arid uh, part of the country. And therefore, she asked her father Caleb for land with the water rights nearby, and it was granted to her. Well, now, by American standards, it may appear that Aksah is a greedy woman, She's something like Scarlett O'Hara was, who was pushing her husband into business deals and asking daddy to give her the best piece of land and, and the water rights nearby. And so she would appear to us as a greedy person. However, you have to remember that inheritance in the Old Testament, that piece of property that the Lord gave to his people was an indication of God's grace to the Israelites. And so, Aksa was not a greedy person. You also have to remember that when this book of the Bible, probably written by Samuel, was written, he had primarily his contemporary audience in, in mind, and therefore, we shouldn't look at this from an American perspective, but we should look at it from an Israelite perspective in the Old Testament. And so, it was a blessing to have a piece of land in the Old Testament like that. And so Aksa is shown as a woman with godly interest. She wanted to have a good piece of land to uh, indicate to her that God's grace was with her. And so it's important to remember that land in the Old Testament carries spiritual connotations and indicates God's blessings on the recipient. The inherited estate was not simply a tract of profitable turf, but a gift from God. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10, But when you go over Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God 
you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your town, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. So inheritance was something to rejoice over, and Aksa's request for good land indicates that she was a woman with godly entrance. And then finally, against the background of Judges, which pictures the people of God on the spiritual downgrade, the Israelite audience would have contrasted Aksa with the women who appear later in Judges, specifically the hated Delilah. Seen in this light, Aksa would have been viewed as a wife who helped her man, Othniel, who later appears as the ideal judge in the book of Judges. And she looked out for her descendants' future by helping to procure a godly inheritance. Delilah, on the other hand, was a mistress rather than a wife who used her influence to bring her man Samson down, who was the worst of the judges. And so Delilah did so only for her own personal gain. And so today for us, Aksa is a role model for godly women. And along this line, uh, Proverbs chapter 31, verses 11 and 12 say, The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And so, ladies, is this your attitude towards your husband? This should be your highest goal next to your devotion to the Lord you should be devoted to your husband and, of course, to the rest of your family. Your husband's welfare must be at the top of your list of priorities. And so you must not be an Eve leading your husband, in Adam, into temptation and rebellion. You must not be a Rebecca caring for your husband, Isaac, yet wickedly deceiving him. Or you must not be a Michael doing her husband, David, good at first, but then despising him for his godly behavior. Instead, you must be like Oxa, living for your husband and family as your highest happiness. Blessed are those ladies who follow her example, and the hearts of their husbands will trust in them, even as Othniel did in Oxa. And then in verse 17, Judah and Simeon defeat Zephath or Hormah in the deep south of their territory. And then they sort of started to move to the west and to the north up the coastline, attacking the cities uh, there and conquering them. But then in verse 19, a note of difficulty creeps into the narrative. Judah was not able to drive out the people in the lowlands because they had iron chariots. And we begin to wonder, well, what, what's the problem? Why couldn't they drive out these people? Because the Lord had promised that he would be with them, that he would give these people into their hand. And so was the Lord not able to overcome the military technology that these people in the lowlands had, these, these iron chariots? Well, we know, of course, that he would. And so it wasn't the Lord's fault that his people could not drive these people out. And so it must have been their fault. There was something wrong with them that the Lord stopped helping them because of the sin in their lives. And so somehow they failed to fulfill their covenant obligations to the Lord. And this sets the stage for the remainder of this first introduction, which shows Israel continuing on the downward spiritual trend 
in verse 21. Well, even though this story declines throughout the remainder of this chapter, Israel did have initial success. And the reason was that God's grace has been with his people. In verse 2, he shows that he is a God that answers prayer. In verse 4, he reveals that he helps his people as they carry out his work. And then in verse 19, the Lord is a God who most importantly is with his people. Not just passively looking on as they struggle, but he is there helping them to accomplish the things that he has told them to accomplish. Not only was he with his people through the military battles, he later sent his son to live with and for his people. This is the Emmanuel principle that God is with us. Another name for Emmanuel is the Lord Jesus Christ because even today he is still with his people and he is calling people to come to trust in him, to believe in him and receive the salvation that he offers. And he's also in heaven today interceding for his people, helping them to accomplish the things that he wants them to do today. And so if you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he invites you to come and receive the salvation that he offers. He invites you to come in repentance and faith in him. That is, you put all of your trust in him and receive as a free gift the salvation that he has accomplished. You have known freedom in this country before, and we celebrate it today in our country or this weekend in our country. Well, Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. It's real freedom that he offers you today, not only that you have in this country, but freedom in every way from the slavery to sin that Ian mentioned in his preparation with the children. He delivers you from the power and the penalty of sin through faith. And he enables you and helps you to live the life that he commands you to do today. And so if you've never done so before, I invite you to come and embrace Christ who will forgive your sins gladly. If you would like to talk to someone after the service about this, you can speak to me or you can speak to one of the elders. But if you have already embraced Christ by faith, then God calls you to follow him in renewed holiness. Just as he answered prayer with Israel, he does so today. And even as he gave Israel success in their work for him, so will he do for you today. Ask him to give you a holy reverence for him, a commitment to prayer, and a zeal to obey his commandments, especially with your family. And he promises to give you his enabling grace on the way. Happy are all those who hope in him. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that even as you were with your people back in the days of Judah, that so you are with your people today. We thank you, Father, for the enabling of the Holy Spirit that indwells us, that you have poured out upon us. We pray, Father, that in this coming week, that because of these things, that you will enable us to be more devoted to you, to love you more deeply, and to obey you more readily. And we give thanks, Father, for all that you'll do in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.